I want to paint three little pictures for you. The first one is a picture of Sarah. Sarah has four kids. Oldest is eight, all the way down to two. And on some days, she has time to just sit quietly for a moment. And when she does, she wonders what on earth happened to me. Uh, I used to be a, you know, a rising account executive, bright future, but now the laundry's overflowing. I have no idea what's for dinner. Then, after 45 years, Bob retired at the top of his industry. And since then, his life has crashed. He's lonely. No one knows him anymore. The guy who replaced him, he's tearing down all of the good things that he built into that company. And mostly, he just wonders, will another round of golf or another holiday, will it make it all worthwhile? And then there's Judy. She's working her way to the top. She's young, smart, hardworking, motivated. There's a great career path ahead of her. Sure, there is competition for the best roles, but she usually wins. There have been sacrifices along the way, but right now she is having a ball. She loves it. What about you? What is the story of your work? I wonder. Uh, today and next week again, we're going to be thinking biblically about work. Now, work is not just paid employment. The Bible views work as any purposeful activity that requires your focus and your effort. Uh, it could be a career, or it could be housework, or it could be schoolwork. It could be caring for children. It could be caring for grandchildren, or it could be caring for parents. It could be study. might be paid work. It might be voluntary work. Even if you are currently looking for employment, there's a job to be done, isn't there? If it feels like work, it probably is. At the outset, I want you to think about your work. So I'm going to give you just a moment, and I want you to think in your head, okay, what actually is my work? What role do you carry that requires this focused effort? What's your work? Just think about it in your head. Hope you've got something there. Whenever we talk about work now, uh, this morning, I want you to keep in mind your work as you've just defined it in your own mind. Here's another question, though. Uh, what do you want out of your work? We began with three little vignettes of Sarah and Bob and Judy. Maybe in their little stories you identified their searches for security, for significance, for success, for satisfaction. What do you want from your work? I mean, I know that we all need to bring in some income, uh, you know, keep food on the table, that sort of thing. But what do you want in your work? I think in some way we're all looking for work that matters. We want to pay the bills, but we want the work itself to be worthwhile, to matter, to have lasting value. And today we're going to see why work that is transformed into worship will bring greater satisfaction than any other motive. As worship, we'll see that work matters and work satisfies. Bypassing worship actually strips work of its good and it devalues its significance and its worth. That's where we're going this morning. 
Um, and for this to be real and this to become real in our lives, we need a, a biblical foundation. And so we're going to begin our biblical foundation uh, in Genesis. And um, we've got that expansive creation account in Genesis chapter 1. But then something surprising happens on the seventh day. So in your Bible, look with me at Genesis uh, 2, beginning at the first verse. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So referring back to chapter 1, little summary statement, verse 2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. The surprise is that God stops working. The amazing thing is that all of Genesis chapter 1 is his work from which he rests on the seventh day. And so we learn something fundamental about God. God is a worker. God creates. That was his work in creation. And so now humanity, freshly minted in God's image at the end of chapter 1, humanity also works in God's image. And so when you skip down to 2 verse 15, the last verse we read today, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So it turns out that work is actually a good gift from God. Adam is taken and put in the garden to work it. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Christianity and the environment, and now we have another piece of that picture Made in God's image, humanity works the good work of taking care of Eden. And it's a gift. Work is a gift. It is a privilege. And it is a responsibility. Uh, Even now, some days anyway, gardening harks back to that, don't you think? It feels good to get your hands into the soil. Great pleasure, really, requiring energy and focus. And the goodness of work in Eden is actually embedded in the language that is used to describe it. The Hebrew root word for work is the same root word for service, particularly the service of God, the kind of work that a priest would do. So what happens is that God takes mankind, puts them in his garden, his personal domain that's marked out from the rest of creation, and in that place... Their work is service, like the service of a priest in the temple. Now, I know that work doesn't always feel like worship, right? But this is the way that it is cast in this uh, opening stanza of the Bible, in this description of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Humanity's efforts, our organised, focused activity are so valued, so important to God, that he describes them in terms of worship. Work is good. And just as God works, as it says in verse 2, he also rests from his work. Verse 3, that God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So God works and God rests, and the seventh day is blessed as the day of rest. God rests, we rest. It's important to know that work is not all we do. We are not defined by our work. 
We are not our work. Our worth is a, as a person is not measured by our work. Our worth as a person is defined by our being created in the image of God. Just as an aside, in this week when our state government is actually reviewing the laws on abortion, this is the biblical idea that is at stake. Our value as a human being is not located in our ability to work or in our capability to do anything. Our value is anchored in our being made in the image of God. Now, I recognise that decisions about the life of an unborn child are incredibly complex. They're not decisions that I'm qualified to make. There's always going to be grey areas. I understand that. Acknowledging that, my point is simply that the worth of any human being is anchored in God's sight in the fact that they are made in his image, not their utility, not their capability. So with this in mind, a little later in the service, I've asked the people who are praying to actually pray for our state parliament as they make some very difficult decisions in the coming week. Being made in God's image is the principle that anchors the value of every human being regardless of their work. Your work, whether you are paid a lot or whether you're paid a little or whether you're paid nothing at all, whether you build skyscrapers or whether you build widgets, whether you change the world or whether you just change nappies, your work does not define your value as a person. You are fully human whether you are at work or whether you are at rest. And that's why work for work's sake will never fully satisfy us. Work alone is incomplete. It's part of a bigger picture of life that we are given, a bigger picture of life that includes rest. So there's our first two big stones on this foundation that we're building, our biblical foundation. God works and we work. God rests and we rest. Next big stone in our biblical foundation comes from Genesis 3. We're still in the Garden of Eden, just temporarily, but there's been a radical change in Genesis 3. Mankind sins and work is frustrated. Uh, just as an aside, again, remember that all of our thinking about the book of Genesis kind of is, is built on top of a recent series of sermons that we did called First Things First. Worth a listen on our website or on the app if you have questions about, well, how does Genesis work and how do I understand it and read it? Beginning of Genesis 3 then, Adam and Eve decide to reject God and his ways and they decide to rule themselves. But there are consequences. And so uh, in Genesis 3, verse 17 to 19, God is speaking and he's describing the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. So uh, reading from verse 17, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, until you return the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so Adam is going to experience the consequences of his sin in his work. Okay, the ground is cursed now as a result. Work is going to be a painful toil for him. 
the joy of growing food to eat is going to be frustrated by the thorns and the thistles. The food will still be grown, but it's going to be hard now until the day Adam dies and returns to the earth from which his body was formed, producing food will be hard. Food is really the outcome of work, if we think about it that way. And so I think the same, we don't really need a lot of explanation at this point. We know that work is like this. It's really easy. There's always a challenge, isn't there? There's always a difficult customer. There's always a difficult workmate. There's always a difficult client. Sometimes we have too much work. Sometimes we have not enough work. Both are stressful. And as we read about the cursing of the ground here, which profoundly impacts work, Note that the work itself is not bad and the work itself is not evil. It is challenging. That's what it is. It's hard, but it can still be worship. It is no less a spiritual exercise, no further removed from faith. We still have an integrated picture of work. It is still valuable and it can still be worship directed towards God. It's just a lot harder. That's the outcome of Genesis 3. So in our places of work, in the home or in the office, in the classroom, the lab, wherever it is that you work, we are going to experience these thorns and thistles, whatever they are, all kinds. As you read through the Bible, one of the great pictures of what life is like, what work is like, is in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there the teacher, who is the author of this book, he wrestles with the meaninglessness of work without worship. In other words, when the work is just the end in itself, when work is just about earning enough money to get some food, and so that weekly cycle of work goes around and around and around, it's meaningless. And so the teacher writes, what do people get from all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Does your work feel like that some days? You can, can't it? And then when work is kind of different to that, when it is full of opportunity, when there are no limits to your exploration or knowledge or to the pleasures that work brings you, the teacher discovers again in the book of Ecclesiastes the same thing. Work without God... Work for work's sake is meaningless. Listen to this. The teacher writes, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water to, uh, to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. All, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything 
was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise must die too. So at the end of the teacher's great experiment, he concludes that work without God is meaningless. No matter how much we achieve, no matter how much success we enjoy, or how many luxuries and experiences our work affords us, work in and of itself will never satisfy. And so the key to working well, now that we are outside of Eden, whatever your work is, the key is integrating our faith with our work and bringing those two together in worship, right in the middle of your ordinary every day. Our sermon next week is going to be dealing a lot with these practicalities. Cara Martin, who is an award-winning author of two books on this topic, she's going to be our speaker, so don't miss out next week. But let's begin to think now, how do we bring our work and our faith together so that something meaningful takes place in the workplace? First of all, we don't need to bring God along to work with us because he's already there. He's already at work and he's in our work. Our job actually is to figure out what he's up to and join in. All of this actually makes a whole lot of sense when we consider the trajectory of our work, where, where it's all headed. Standing on the shoulders of last week's sermon, we know that all our work is actually done in hope, knowing that ultimately we will glorify God in the new creation by ruling and working in his image. Stay with me on this one, okay, because this is the link. This is how we get there. This is what's going to transform tomorrow morning at about 9 o'clock. Our work now is an expression of hope. It is forward-facing faith put into action. God-oriented work, work that is worship in the middle of the factory or the boardroom or wherever it is, all that work is done looking forward to the rule of Jesus over all things. We're doing the work now even though we don't fully experience his kingdom rule yet. So just to be clear, I'm not talking about earning our salvation by being good workers. What we're talking about is the salvation life of the person who is already saved by faith in Christ. We are talking about the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do, as Paul writes to the Ephesians. So remember, faith looks back to the promises of God and acts Faith without action is dead. In the same way, hope looks forward to the promises of God and acts. I want to suggest that hope without action is also dead. So that's our perspective. We've got to remember ourselves as the future rulers of all creation with the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the picture given to us in Revelation 21 and 22. When heaven is joined to earth in the new creation, when God lives in the midst of his people, John says this, 
I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. So what began with a garden is now a city. And the splendour of the nations is being carried by the kings of the earth and brought in as tributes to God. Uh, Tim Keller imagines this splendour as including you know, great works of art being shipped in and uh, the triumphs of technology and all of the beautiful deeds of faith and love and care for the poor and compassion for, for the vulnerable. All of these bits of human endeavour are being carried as tributes to God, offered to him in worship. Now, I don't know if that's how it's going to be. Let's wait and see if Tim Keller's right. It's a helpful image though, isn't it? of the enduring significance of human work. The picture in Revelation continues. Then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And the lamb, uh, and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. Notice the curse is reversed. No longer will there be any curse. Instead, God's servants, including you and me, we will serve him. There's that word again. Serve. That link between service and work. Same root word. We serve in the sense associated with worship, with the service of a priest in a temple. We will serve God in some kind of work in the new creation. Joined as co-heirs with Jesus Christ, ruling in God's image over all of creation, we will work. And that is our great hope. And acting now, we put that hope into action We work looking forward to fulfilment in the kingdom of God. That's where we see the true value of teaching the child or of serving that client or of healing that patient or building that house or researching that idea. Whatever the immediate goal of your work is, we work in the present bringing glory to God, believing that in the future that glory will be fully realised in the new creation. So today we've looked again at the very broad sweep of the Bible to build a foundation where our future hope shapes our present work. We work because God works. His work in creation will endure through renewal and we anticipate the renewal of our work too, even as we rest. We don't know exactly what will endure, but we know that what we do now will have an impact for all eternity. Trusting in Christ, hope turns work into worship, into work that actually matters. We do it for him. 
We do it in his strength. We aim for what pleases God in our work and we do it his way. Work cannot and does not save us. But saved by faith, God takes our work and he uses it for his purpose. It matters because it brings him glory. And more practically, it matters because through it, God is achieving his eternal purposes. Main thing to take away from today. Work and faith do not exist in separate worlds. Instead, they come together beautifully as worship, or as one author puts it, workship. You pray with me. God and Father, we thank you for our creation in your image. And as we continue to grapple with all that it means to be your representatives in and over all creation, we ask that you give us insight. Show us how the work that we do, which sometimes seems so mundane, so frustrated, grant us such insight that we might see all that you see in our work. And Lord, through our effort and our focus, may we bring honour to your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stu, we have time for a couple of questions. Uh, There's one on the phone. So guys, if you had a question for Stu, the number's on the inside back page of your news. And while I'm asking this question and having it answered, feel free to text it and I'll read it out for you. But the question I have, Stu, is help me think about the idea of us serving God. Didn't Jesus say he came to serve, not to be served? So, I think so help me think about serving God. Yeah. Didn't Jesus say? Jesus, as God says, I'm not here to be served. So how, how do we understand our serving of yeah. a God who says, I came not to be served? Sure. Um, when Jesus speaks there uh, in Mark 10, uh, he's talking about his work of salvation. If we ask the question, what's our work? Well, the work of Jesus was actually to save mankind. That was his job. Our work is not to save mankind. Um, as, as we've said before, there's nothing I can do by way of work that is going to do the sort of, sort of thing that Jesus has done. However, it's helpful to notice that Jesus thought of himself as a servant. In our human um, uh, life, we look to Jesus as a model for many things. And I think when we view ourselves as servants, not those who have come to be uh, you know, served, and it doesn't matter what your work is, um, if, it, if it's um, uh, a work that is unseen and not applauded and not highly rewarded with money, it's probably easy for you to think, oh, I am a servant. But that is valuable work. Jesus was a servant himself. He gave all that dignity to service as work. Some people have very high-profile jobs and they are acclaimed widely for the work. That's great. That person also is a servant. And it would be very, very helpful for them to see them as a servant, figure out who it is that they're serving with such great, perhaps, responsibility. So I think that sort of idea of service and servant is really foundational to working well in God's kingdom. Thanks, Stu. 
Another question. I understand the way we do work has eternal significance because the way we do it glorifies God. But since the world will all be destroyed, 2 Peter 3, in the end I struggle to see how my work's outcome will endure endure eternally. Can you expand on this? I would love to expand on that. Um, Did everyone get my email through the week where I explained 2 Peter 3 in four simple sentences? Excellent. Good. So... Some of the premise of the enduring value of our work is on the enduring nature of creation. Uh, And so um, our author perhaps is unconvinced by my exegesis of 2 Peter 3, and that's fine. Um, But let's think a little bit about the enduring nature of the value of our work. Um, Is my work of, um, let's say I'm a school teacher, is my work of any enduring value? Because some days, as a school teacher, all I'm doing is chasing kids around the playground and doing things that seem to me so empty and valueless. Is that work of any value? Well, if we think about the new creation and where those children are headed, we begin to get the backdrop which invests that task of being a teacher with incredible worth. What happens in the lives of the children in my class actually has eternal significance. Will God take my work and use it through their lives? Who knows what their life is going to hold? Can anyone does anyone remember their favourite school teacher? Most people can remember. I've got a favourite school teacher. He was my teacher in year five and year six, Mr. Lowry. He was awesome. All of these years, and there's a lot of years now between me and year five and year six. I remember the guy. Why? He had a huge and enduring impact in my life. And so let's just say it, there's one, that's a worked example of the enduring worth of a teacher in the lives of their student. Now, every other kind of job, uh, not only those humanities-based jobs of, say, being a parent or a nurse or a doctor or whatever, it's easy to see their enduring value, but all kinds of other work has enduring value as well. Who knew that a financial advisor cared about people? Turns out they do. I heard Andrew tell us before the service. It's a people job. He's helping. He's serving. Fantastic. So I think that work actually does have enduring value, um, regardless of what happens to creation. It has enduring value because the people that I work with have an enduring presence, either with God or not. Stu, on the back of that, this question, which I really like, um, perhaps you've gone away to answering it. What makes work good? We created in God to do good works. So how do we know if it's good? Would you say it's to do with our relationships with people? I'd yeah, yeah. love to hear your answer. Um, yeah, what makes um, work good? I think we need to sort of re- revalue the scales on which we judge the goodness of work. I think sometimes we, uh, in our Western society, value work depending on the size of the pay packet. Uh, You know, you get paid a lot to do this job, so the work must be worth a lot. I don't think that's biblically a sound way for us to evaluate what makes good work, if I could twist the meaning of that uh, that question just a tad, I think. I think what makes good work is the kingdom value attributed to that work. Um, Shout out to the teachers. You're doing kingdom work. That's great. Shout out to the nurses and the doctors. So evaluate your work as to what will this do in the, in the kingdom. Um, as a former architect, it was a bit of a challenge to recognise, well, um, you know, the life of this building is, that I'm working on today is probably 50 years at most. Uh, what worth is that? 
my only answer was, what is it that my building contributes to the lives of the people who use it? And as an architect, I had to wrestle with that issue. Um, I got to design hospitals. That was great fun, but I, I evaluated my work not by how grand it was, but by the life experience of the users of the building. So see if you can think about the value of your work through the kingdom lens rather than through the pay packet lens. What about also in the sense that it's an expression of God's character in creation? I mean, he was a creator, and as you express creation, that's enacting the character of God in your work. Absolutely. That also makes it good. 